0: Last year, around this time, we had a particular Sunday where I invited you to pray like you mean it, and we had a series of doors that we posted, and then you put various prayer requests on those doors, and from that date to Easter, we prayed, and we rejoiced at a number, not all, of those prayer requests that were specifically answered in the way that we had hoped. Now, there's a bunch of prayer requests that were answered, but they were not answered in the way that we hoped or they were answered with God telling us to wait. So God always answers. Sometimes he answers in a way that we see the fulfillment of the longings of our hearts in terms of what we're asking for. And so we had a door that was filled with answers to prayer and today we're going to do the same thing but take this text in John 15 and particularly think about what it means when Jesus says, abide in me and ask Whatever you will, and it will be done for you. So we're gonna think about what does abiding and asking mean? How those two things go together? Tonight, as Joe mentioned, we'll pray together at five o'clock. If you wanna be encouraged and you wanna be connected, you need to come at five o'clock. There's a direct relationship between people's ability to get connected and have this church feel like it's their home when they come to our five o'clock once a month prayer time. So if you don't feel like you're connected and you never come to five o'clock prayer time, I love you, but that's on you. But you need to come and you need to pray in order to connect with other people. And additionally, it's a time for us to this evening be able to rejoice in answered prayer. Tonight, the whole theme is on how God answers prayer. So if you need to be encouraged, or if you just need to stoke the sort of the, the coals of your prayer life, which we all need to do at some level, Tonight at five o'clock is our prayer time. We meet for an hour, we pray. It's a wonderful time. As well, if you're a member, we have a couple member things at the end, one related to a church discipline thing that we need to bring you up to date on, so please come tonight. We're in John chapter 15. We've been in this gospel since the fall of 2018. We paused in November for Advent and then a little series on our identity, and we left the middle of this section that in John's Gospel is called the Upper Room Discourse. It's a series of instructions that Jesus gives his disciples really about what it means to be a disciple. This is where we find Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. He identifies that one of them will betray him. It's where Jesus gives them a new command. He tells them, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's also here where Jesus has sort of this drop the mic moment where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. In John 15, we see a continuation of this where Jesus connects an Old Testament metaphor of the vine and he expands on it, helping these disciples to know what does it mean to really be a disciple. And so today I wanna unpack this abiding and asking dynamic by helping you see what Jesus is talking about here as it relates to being united to him, as it relates to abiding with him, and what it means to have joy in him. So what it means for spiritual union, and abiding and joy to be true about those who claim to be the followers of Jesus. So first, what does it mean to be united to Christ? Well, that's what we see in the first three verses. Jesus says this, I am the true vine. Most important word in those words, it's the word true. The word vine is important, but the word true is even more important. I'll explain to you why in a moment. My father is the vine dresser. So Jesus is using here this spiritual metaphor in order to communicate our spiritual union with him if you are a follower of him. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you confess your sins, ask Jesus to be your savior, what happens is you are now united to Christ. His death has become your death, his resurrection becomes your resurrection, his life becomes your life. You are united in Christ, such that everything about your life is connected to one single reality. Jesus is alive and I am forgiven. So. That union is really important. Jesus says, I am the true vine. This is the last of seven I am statements in John's gospel. It's probably the most important. John six, I am the bread of life. John eight, I am the light of the world. John 10, I'm the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, on the way, the truth, and the life. Now we come, John 15, I am the true vine. Why true vine? Because the idea of a vine is connected to Israel's history. It's how God described Israel, both in her best moments and in her worst moments. Go to Psalm chapter 80. We're going to look at two texts besides John 15 today because I want you to see this in your Bible and I also want you to be instructed about how to study the Bible. So if you're reading the Bible, a better way to say that, when you're reading the Bible, don't just get stuck in like one text. You find a verse or a word, sometimes a study Bible will be helpful or just type into some search engine, where else is the word vine used in the Bible? And you'll see all these references because what's important is for you to see how the Bible stitches together ideas across Genesis all the way to Revelation. So this idea of being a true vine isn't just coming out of nowhere. Jesus wasn't like, well, what's a good analogy to use? Oh, I know, a vine. He's, he's pulling something from the Old Testament. Now look at Psalm 80, verse seven restore us o god of hosts let your face shine that we may be saved here it comes you brought a vine out of egypt you drove out the nations and planted it he's speaking there about the people of israel you cleared the ground for it you took it took deep root and filled the land and now here's the mission of israel it was that the mountains were to be covered with its shade the mighty cedars with its branches it sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river in other words it's meant to be on sort of on a mission, a blessing to the nations. And then he says this. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and have regard for this vine." So Jesus becomes the intersection of both the history of Israel, this request for restoration, and for God to fulfill all that he intended in the people of Israel to now be embodied in the person of Jesus. So when he says, I am the true vine, he's saying everything leading up to this moment has all been about me, which is an outrageous thing to say, unless you really are the son of God. So he's saying, I am the true vine, The people of Israel, in this moment, are lamenting the fact that they are under God's judgment and they're longing for the day of future restoration, and we find that those ideas of judgment and restoration converge in no other than the person of Jesus who embraces the judgment of God, not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it, and he is the means by which ultimate restoration comes. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, all the disciples would have gone, Ooh, they probably didn't use the word legit, but they would go, that's legit right there. Like, that's got, that's got historical stuff in it. That's, that's meaningful. Jesus is, is loading this metaphor. I am the true vine. And then he says, my father, back in John 15, is the vine dresser. Here's how it sounds. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Jesus, throughout this upper room discourse, He's with his disciples, sort of private conversations about what it means to be a follower of his. He talks about the Father all the time. John says this in chapter 13 and verse three, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands. In John 14, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. John 14, six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then he says this, no one comes to the father but through me and then he has the audacity but the accuracy to say John 14:11 I am in the father and the father is in me so the father's role is becoming increasingly apparent and Jesus is bringing it to the forefront of his connection to the father and the disciples' connection to the father through Jesus now he calls the father the vine dresser go to the book of Isaiah chapter 5 Isaiah is loaded with important biblical imagery. And in verses one to seven, God is described here as the vine dresser, but notice the problem. Isaiah five, verse one. Let me sing for my beloved, let my song, or my song concerning his vineyard. There's that metaphor again. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. So the image, before we go any further, is this, this, this beloved found some land and planted some vines and built a tower because he wanted grapes. That's why you build a vineyard, you want grapes. You don't build a vineyard just to have a vineyard. You build a vineyard because you want grapes. And yet, verse two says this, but it yielded wild grapes. So this becomes a metaphor of the problem of humanity, that God has built a garden, and in that garden was one tree. And Adam and Eve were given one instruction. You can eat of all of these other trees, but don't eat of this one. And in classic human fallenness, we are always interested in the thing we don't have. FOMO began in the garden. (laughs) All of these trees belong to you. Yeah, but what about that one? And the story of our brokenness, the story of your life, the story of my life, is this relentless pursuit of going after that one little thing we don't have. Instead of being content with what all of the God has given, we wanna look in the little boxes, or little places, or little websites, or little products that we don't have. So here are these wild grapes. Verse three, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it, when I looked for it to yield grapes? Why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what to do with my vineyard. So because of the wild grapes, here's what God does, I will remove its hedge and it will be devoured. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled down. It will be made a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up and I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting for he looked for justice but behold bloodshed for righteousness behold an outcry. So the nation of Israel demonstrated their lack of obedience to God with a lack of concern for other people in their society and God sees them and says that's wild grapes. So the father is the vine dresser and he's deeply concerned about good grapes versus bad grapes. Or to put it back in John 15, as you go back to that text, Jesus is concerned about good fruit versus no fruit. So what does the vine dresser do? Verse two, knowing that's the case, Jesus uses this analogy, connecting it to the Old Testament metaphor, talks about the vine dresser who's deeply concerned about good grapes or good fruit. Here's what the vine dresser does. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Why? Because the purpose of the branch is to produce fruit. If you're not producing fruit and you're part of a vine, you shouldn't be there, that's the point. Like those two things go together. He then says, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So notice this, that branches that don't produce fruit are taken away and branches that do produce fruit are pruned so that they can then create and produce more fruit. So the vine dresser's activity is constantly involved in the display of his wisdom in trying to find ways to help fruitful parts of the vine become even more fruitful and also the removal of things that aren't creating any fruit. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, let me talk with you about pruning. You need to know and understand that God is more passionate about your fruitfulness, and by that I mean the kind of character, the kind of actions, the kind of attitude that comes out of you that glorifies God such that you look like Jesus in ways that you wouldn't, apart from that, God is more concerned about that than you are. Now you may be concerned about that at some level, which is awesome, but God is so concerned about that in your life that he sovereignly directs things in order to force the creation of that fruit in our lives and usually that pruning process is not necessarily initially enjoyable. It's similar to anything where you become skilled at something or good at it. In order to do that, you have to make hard sacrifices. Like if you go online and you look for new diet, and you're like, the easy diet, right? (laughs) So if a diet was easy, we'd all be like better looking. Let's just put it that way, okay? Um, Struggling for the right metaphor to use that was socially acceptable. So um, I'll just say it this way. We wouldn't be so fat. That's what I meant, okay? That's what I wanted to say. Or maybe you look out, look online for um, no pain workout. <laughs> you just show up at the gym, scan in, and you're like, I'm out, right? You leave the, right? so that's, easy. I went to, go to the gym today, I went to the gym today, right? In order to receive the benefits, there must be pain, These folks who served us so well in leading in worship, and they're going to continue to do so, we're going to sing more at the end as we respond to the Lord in light of this text. I mean, they're up here because they've spent thousands of hours behind the scenes practicing and and working on their craft. I mean, while other people were doing certain things, they were doing this thing. So there's sacrifices and painful scenarios. So here's my question. Why in the world do we expect it to be anything different when it comes to our spiritual growth? Some of you right now are in pruning moments, and you've spent the last week complaining that it's hard. And I just lovingly want to tell you, brother, sister, like you need to get over that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't lament that it's hard. I understand that it's hard, but the reality is that hardship is actually going to produce something in you that if that wasn't there, you wouldn't be as fruitful. God is more concerned about the production of fruit in you than he is about your concern for a pain-free life. In fact, when I look back at my life, and I was just telling someone this the other day, um, like there, there were really painful things that now, 26 years later, I can see a little bit of God's providential wisdom. Uh, for instance, I went to college thinking I was going to be a pre-med major. I wanted to go into medical missions. Specifically, I wanted to go to Togo, West Africa. Specifically, I wanted to serve in the very hospital that we're supporting financially with our Christmas offering. I went to school, and then I got into chemistry. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so I did it one semester, and I was, I'm out. And I thought, you know what, I want to just, I want to preach and teach the Bible. And then our senior year, there was an opportunity to go to Ghana, West Africa, which is the next door country to Togo, English-speaking uh, uh, country, opportunity to go there for two years. So right out of college, we began raising support for a two-year missions experience. And long story short, got about 85% of the way there, and the Lord closed that door and I remember the moment coming back from a field trip in Ghana, in New York City, calling my wife and telling her, we can't go. And I remember going home thinking, what happened? Did I miss God's will? Did I not hear you calling me to do this? Look, look, all of this time, this is embarrassing, I have to tell all these people that I'm not going, i raised all this money, et cetera, et cetera. Well, because of that closed door, I went to Grand Rapids, Michigan. and enrolled in a particular seminary, and at that seminary was a particular professor. His name was Dr. Jim Greer, who happened to be the mentor of Kimber Coffin, who planted this church. So, so to be very honest with you, I wouldn't be here at College Park Church today, were it not for the closing of the door in Ghana that led me to meet him. And our church probably wouldn't be financially supporting a project in Togo, West Africa, were it not for those moments when I thought, God, what in the world are you doing? Oh, God knew exactly what he was doing. I just couldn't see it. So, so can I just remind you if you're asking and praying and God's answer is being delayed and you're like, this is so hard, can I just remind you, brother, sister, follow the word Jesus, give it some time. Trust the Lord. Trust that the vine dresser knows what he's doing. See yourself. Not as an equal with God, like you got to vote on all what God's doing, but see yourself as this child who can trust the kind, benevolent care of a God who wants to help us and sometimes has to painfully redirect our steps. If you're older, however you want to define that, you've got some years behind you, you need to share stories like I just shared because it helps those who are younger to realize, you know what, God's got this, he can be trusted. We've seen him be faithful in the past, you just don't see it all right now. This text also has a warning to it. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. What's that about? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This is what this means. It means that there were branches in Jesus that weren't in Jesus. They looked like they were in Jesus. So don't get hung up on the word in so much. The real focus is the fact that these are branches that do not bear fruit. So these are, these are branches that look like they're healthy in a particular season, but over time it's going to become evident that there's no life in them. For instance, I have a tree in my yard and there are particular branches that going into the fall had died right now with no leaves. You'd have no idea which are the alive branches or the dead branches. But when spring comes, and the life begins to take over on that tree, and leaves begin to bud, the dead branches are gonna be very, very clear. And what I'm gonna do is cut those and throw them away. And Jesus describes particular people as that's the condition of their soul. Listen, in a congregation this size, or the folks listening online, there's, there's a number of you who fit that particular description. What is that like? It's like this. You, you know just enough about the Bible, you know just enough about spiritual things to get people kind of off your back. You know how to do the dance, to say the right words, nod your head and everything else, but you peel away the surface and there's no spiritual life within you. There, there's, no, there's no sustenance of Jesus in you because you know about Jesus but you don't know Jesus. Or put it this way, you you came to faith in Christ, quote unquote, because you were scared to death about going to hell, which you should have been scared at one level about that, but you came to Jesus because you wanted like insurance to know, when I die, I gotta know where I'm going. And once you did that, you're like, I'm good now. I don't need to grow, don't need to deal with my own sin issues, don't need to repent. And, And can I just caution you? The Bible describes that condition as being a branch that doesn't bear fruit. And the text goes on, and it uses kind of scary language in verse six, this is what the Bible says, that this branch withers, the branches are gathered, they're thrown into the fire and burned. It's a a reference to judgment. So here's the deal, there's some of you here today that when you think about abiding and asking, I don't even want you to think about asking, you need to think about abiding and what it means to even have a real relationship with Jesus. And I wanna call some of you today to be honest be honest about where you really are spiritually and maybe today would be a day when you say you know what I genuinely need to come to faith in Christ no more faking it I'm one of those fruitless branches and the church this church always has a number of people who fit that bill and I'm just thankful you're here today because God in his kindness allowed you to hear this warning before it's too late so why not come to Jesus today Why not experience like what real Christianity is when Jesus lives in you and takes over every arena of your life? You see, that's what it means to abide, and that's our second point. The difference between a fruitless branch and a fruit-bearing branch, or the difference between a fake it Christian and a real Christian relates to this idea of abiding, Jesus says this, abide in me and I in you. And notice the connection, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, so the key to abiding here is the absence of the focus of self-sufficiency. Christians, by definition, are not self-sufficient. One of the reasons that prayer is so important is prayer is my declaration of dependence upon God. Prayer is my way of saying, God, I need you. He says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So abide, abide, abide. What's the word abide mean? It simply means to remain in or to dwell in. The idea is of a dependent relationship. In fact, verse five, I think, is the most helpful. I am the vine, you are the branches. I love the clarity. Jesus just lays it on the disciples. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If I was Jesus, I'd be like, say it with me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Because here's the thing. I find that the problems in my walk with Jesus is I get that verse wrong. And then he says this. He that, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So I thought, how could I help this definition of abide to be a little sticky? How could it kind of go with you? How could it help you tomorrow morning? Feet hit the floor, covers are out, Um, you're ready to hit your day. What is it? You need to know how do you abide? How do you abide? How do you abide? Here's what think of abide this way abide simply means a mindset where you have this perspective, nothing without Jesus. Nothing without Jesus. That's how you had your sins forgiven, nothing without Jesus. And so my my challenge and my exhortation to you would be, you wanna understand what it means to abide? Then when your feet hit the floor tomorrow morning, let this be your mantra, I can do nothing without Jesus. When you go to your place of work or, or, or to school or whatever it is that you're doing and you run into conflict or difficulties, just remind yourself, nothing without Jesus. When your friend says something snarky, and you got these, this, this, this thing that's going in your head, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Nothing without Jesus. Nothing without Jesus. I, I think if you're a follower of Jesus, you would agree that most of our trouble is that we live as if we can do everything with me, and we need to remind ourselves, I can do nothing without Jesus. That's what it means to abide. And John absolutely loves this word. The Apostle Paul loves the concept of being in Christ. John loves the word abide. Of the 118 times the word is used in the Bible, 67 of them are used in John. John wrote some epistles, first, second, and third John. Just listen to how often he uses the word abide and how he uses it. 1 John chapter 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner he walked. 1 John 2, 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. 1 John 2, 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either known him or seen him. 1 John 4.13, by this we know we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. 1 John 4:15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So John, like he really digs the word abide. If John was into tattoos, it'd be like abide on his wrist or maybe his bicep or something. If he was into hashtags, it'd be like hashtag abide. That would be his thing. Like John's all about abiding, why? Because for him to be a disciple is to abide. It's It's the single most important reality for John that describes what disciples are to do. So if someone came up to John and said, how can I follow Jesus? He'd say, abide in Jesus. Now some of the disciples who may have asked him that may have been frustrated, like, what do you mean abide? But it'd be the same way as if you came to me as a young married man and you said, how can I be a good, a good husband? My answer would be, love your wife. Like every season of life, just love her as Christ has loved the church. Or if you said, how can I be, how can I be helpful in my neighborhood? My answer would be, just be a good neighbor. Like, be a good neighbor. Well, what does that look like? It's like a 100,000 things. If you limit it to just two or three, it's not helpful. And what John says here is that abiding is to lay hold of Christ. It means that our life is in Jesus. Now this involves fruitfulness. Look at verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and thrown into the fire. And verse eight, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So abiding results in some level of fruitfulness. It also results in obedience. Look at verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So there's a connection between obeying and abiding. You can't disobey and abide. Obedience and abiding go together. He then says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, The focus of the particular application that I want to identify is in verse 7, where Jesus says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. I want to suggest to you that this is one of the signature ways that we express the mindset of, Without Jesus, I can do nothing. Nothing without Jesus. People who understand this, they pray. Why do they pray? Because they know they need Jesus' help. Why do they pray often? Because they know all the time that they need Jesus' help. And this is where some of you who are followers of Jesus are making a huge mistake. Your prayerlessness is a barometer of how you think about abiding. Like you live a self-sufficient life, even as a Christian, like you're converted, you know Jesus is, is your Lord and Savior, your heart gets stoked up for him, you live dependent upon him, but then it leaks over time, and then God brings a hardship into your life, and your first response is, what in the world? I didn't sign up for this. Some of you are angry. Why are you doing this to me? Meanwhile, God's motive and his reason for doing this is because he knows that without pruning and without hardship, not only will you not be fruitful, listen to me, you won't pray. For some of us, our prayer lives are so dependent upon pain. And God has to bring pain or we won't pray. And God is more interested in your praying than he is in an absence of pain in your life. So, Mark, are you saying that if I pray more, there'll be less pain? I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we ought to thank God for pain, because without it, for some of us, our prayer lives will be in the tank. So what does Jesus mean here when he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish? Now, a lot of people, understandably, like they come at this passage and they're like, hey, 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 wait a minute. Doesn't mean that Jesus is some kind of genie. Like, just ask for whatever you want, God's gonna give it. That's true. Doesn't mean that that, that everything you desire you could just talk to God about and He's going to provide. Not some sort of name it, claim it perspective. That's true. All that's true. But it's still in the Bible. So what does it mean? Well, it means this. It means that because of our abiding relationship with Jesus, that we're so connected to him that what he loves, we love. What he wants, we want. And that deep connection affects what we see and what we want. Every husband in this room knows this. Here's why. Because 30 years ago, I could have cared less what was at Bath and Body, whatever that store is called, I could care less what's on HGTV. I don't want better homes and gardens in my home. But since I'm a married man, I not only am interested in those things, I love those things. I love them. I do. I'm like, look at this HGTV show, woo! This is awesome. Now I'm working on the Hallmark thing, but the HGTV show, I'm good, I'm good. Or. I'm walking into a, you know, store names of which I don't even know. I got to work on that too, I guess. But I'm walking in going, look at this rug, like this rug is amazing. Or that lamp, woo! that lamp's up. or my wife wanted a new end table and, you know, she said, what do you think about this? I'm like, babe, this is an awesome end table. 30 years ago I'd been like, it's a table, right? <laughs> Why? My affections and what I love have been shifted because of a union with a woman named Sarah. Her loves are my loves. And by the way, what I love, she loves. It goes both ways, just so you know. She loves power tools and books, and (laughs) she loves my stuff, you know, too. Most of it, okay, so anyways. (laughs) She loves all of it, let me just say that. The same thing should happen with Jesus. You read the Bible, and you see what the Bible says, and you're like, oh, this is what Jesus loves, this is what I love. This is the heart of God, this is my heart, such that what I ask now begins to fit with the very heart of Jesus. That's why he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. In other words, if you know me and you know my words, what you ask, it's gonna fit with the very will and the heart of God. It's gonna be connected to the work of God so that God is at work in you. And the effect, look at the last verse. Here's this very quick little third point. It is that there is now this joy in Christ because these things I have spoken to you that your joy, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Here's the point. There is never a more joyful moment in a believer's life than when their heart is so connected to Jesus that they love what he loves, they want what, they, what he wants, and they pray to him and God does it and does it such that you can see it. And in that moment, you know, woo, Jesus is alive, God is on the move and I'm a real legit Christian and that happens when God answers prayer. And that's why, dear friends, we're gonna spend some time just thinking about what does it mean to abide and ask and abide and ask. For some of you, this is a call for spiritual renewal in your life because your asking is so far away from your abiding and those two need to be brought together and you need to say, Jesus, I need your help because it's been a long time since my affections have been in the right place. In a moment, the band's gonna come. We're gonna sing together. We're gonna have some trellises up front here. Inside your bulletin is a little leaf sticky note. And what I want you to do is I want you to write something on here that relates to this abiding and asking thing. What is it that reflects the heart of Jesus and would reflect your heart that you'd love to see God do? And we're gonna commit to pray between now and Easter for these prayer requests and see what God will do And then when God answers the prayers, we're gonna move them from the trellises to the cross that'll be somewhere in the facility over the next number of weeks. And let's just take this season of prayer and for us to believe that if I abide and if I ask, God could do great things for us, for our church, for his kingdom. And so as they sing and as they lead us, you just feel, when you feel like, just come, if if this would be helpful, and take this little sticky note that's in there, with the words written on it and put it on one of the trellises, and let's just use this as a moment to say, God, we need you. Man, we really need you because there is nothing, Jesus, that I can do unless you help me. So let's sing together and think about what it means to abide and ask.